Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1294, entitled Rough Times. (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast title today is H-Pod Lovecraft. That's what the P stands for, I am sure. (laughs) So, I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And we're going to be talking about a book called Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff and a television show whose name is? Upload. Yes. So, the TV show Upload on Amazon at the moment. And some other little bits and pieces as we go along today here on Triple R. So, I have it on good authority that new Marvel comics have shipped. Excellent. Oh, I'm so stoked. (laughs) As you may know, Diamond Comics, the largest distributor of comics in the US and the UK, and here in Australia, have uh, stopped shipping new books. They stopped in early April due to the pandemic lockdown, Mm -hmm. sort of took a while to have a flow-on effect, which effectively halted the distribution of paper copies of titles from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, IDW, Image, and other major publishing houses. And they're shipping now again. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and there are at least some new Marvel books in your local comic book stores. I picked up an Avengers issue the other week at All Star Comics. Don't like the story. Don't care. <laughs> I've read it three times so far. <laughs> You're like a man in a desert with a little oasis just clinging to the little bit of water. (laughs) DC Comics, as I understand, uh, shifted from Diamond Distributors to using Lunar Distribution, UCS Comics, and Penguin Random House for graphic novels. I don't quite fully grasp the nuances of that all. It's fair to say that it's produced a substantial tremor in the comic book industry already shaken by the pandemic and its economic consequences. So, yeah, caused a, a bit of a, a discontinuity. <laughs> <laughs> the effects are going to be far-reaching, I think, so it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out, but hopefully we'll all still get our comics. So Yeah. All right. So since we're going to be talking about Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. we will play a track from the Doctor Who episode Rosa. As you may remember, and as you can tell from the title, that is a story that was set in the uh, segregationist period of the United States of America. Obviously, this is something that is resonating throughout society still, which is one of those things that is just shameful in the 21st century. And as they once said in Doctor Who, there must be times when the Doctor just turns his face from the world in shame. Mm. For her face, in the case of the 13th Doctor. Okay, so this is Parks, Rosa Parks, and it's by Segan Akinola from Doctor Who Series 11. Hello, my name's Sylvester McCoy. I play Doctor Who number seven, and you're listening to me, and you're also listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. There we go, Parks, Rosa Parks, and this is from the Doctor Who soundtrack 
for the Series 11. That's the 13th Doctor, of course. Sagan Akinola is the composer. I will call her an activist, Rosa Parks, because mm. it just got on that bus and did what she did. Absolutely an activist. Now, we're all caught up in the ongoing drama of the Black Lives Matters protests, and I couldn't help but stumble across this particular book of stories that I thought was highly relevant in a genre way to the tragedies and some triumphs that African-Americans and indeed people of colour all over the world are going through at the moment. So this book combines the African-American experience of racial discrimination and oppression in 1950s USA with the horror fantasy science fiction world of H.P. Lovecraft. It's called Lovecraft Country. It's by Matt Ruff. That's R-U-F-F. It was first published by HarperCollins in 2016, and I've just read it in an Amazon Kindle edition. And I just literally just stumbled across this online. Someone mentioned it, and I thought, why have I not (laughs) read this book? Exactly. It's rare to find a Lovecraft sort of thing that you haven't. You're not already across, Rob. Well, actually, it would seem so, but it's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the evocative stories in this are interconnected because it's a kind of anthology, and it in fact reads like a single novel anyway, and you can readily see why HBO have announced an adaptation for television. Oh, great. It's equally obvious why Jordan Peele, director of Get Out and Us, is on board as it combines both the fight for civil rights with classic horror tropes, while grimly leaning into the reality of racism being a horror story in its own terrible self. And J.J. Abrams is also an executive producer, with Misha Green being the showrunner for that. That's the series, and we've yet to see that. Matt Ruff is from New York, and his style is not far removed from the urban, suburban nightmares of horror maestro Richard Matheson, who you may remember as the man behind The Incredible Shrinking Man, Duel, and a huge number of Twilight Zone episodes and uh, all other television genre short format shows. In fact, one of his stories is actually referenced in this book, which was shown in a a television movie called Trilogy of Terror. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it features Karen Black in um, in an apartment battling a mischievous, (laughs) to put it lightly, South American fetish doll. So Ruff has published six books before Lovecraft Country, a new novel post-Elsie, which is called 88 Names. Now, he's ranged across comic fantasy, cyberpunk, psychological thrillers, and alternative realities. In spectacular regard to the latter, alternative realities, his counterfactual novel, The Mirage, postulates a united Middle East attacked on 9-11 by fanatical terrorists from a Christian fundamentalist group based in one of the many small nations that comprise the geographic region of the real world USA. It's as startling a reversal as Kim Stanley Robinson's epic, The Years of Rice and Salt, where the Black Death wipes out 99% of Europeans in the Middle Ages, leaving the Eastern nations to fill the vacuum. I digress, but don't think it's a bad thing to be compared to Kim Stanley Robinson by any means. Now, returning to Lovecraft County, or country, (laughs) I will get that confused, it pits Atticus Turner, 
a Korean War veteran. He's African-American. He served in the U.S. Army. And not at all, incidentally, he's also a science fiction fan. (laughs) And this pits him against both ancient and contemporary evils in the twin forms of Lovecraftian interdimensional horrors, those who worship them or would like to share their powers, and the more mundane but equally lethal evil of a segregated Southern America under the Jim Crow laws named after a racist blackface caricature from the 1830s. From the 19th and well into the 20th century and into the 1960s, these institutionalised racist practices were taken and enshrined in many states' laws. I don't have time to unpick their villainy here, but you can easily imagine what kind of foul prejudice was enacted under the segregation, where the legal fiction of providing separate but equal facilities for non-whites was legislated. Of course, the facilities were never anything but unequal. In any case, you don't have to imagine it. It's right here in this book. Uh, Matt Ruff, as a white author, soberly spends a lot of time in this book contrasting the matter-of-fact entitlement of white characters with the equally casual micro and macro aggressions that the African-American protagonists endure and can occasionally are able to subvert. Now, the character of Atticus, which is a name that's surely a tip of the hat to the famous lawyer from the iconic To Kill a Mockingbird, has a father whose name is Montrose, who chides him for liking science fiction of the era, which was steeped in colonialism quite often. Mm. And, of course, as we know, H.P. Lovecraft had his own highly dubious attitudes to race and was also influenced by the same dodgy eugenic theories that the Nazis co-opted. Atticus's Uncle George pragmatically publishes a travel book called The Safe Negro Travel Guide, which allows an African-American to navigate with some degree of confidence between oases of sanity across the country, you know, like uh, gas stations which have restrooms where the where the proprietor doesn't mind African-Americans coming in, hotels that are safe, you know. But still, driving while black is still a lethal road trip hazard in many benighted areas in the 1950s. And today. And today. And this book serves as something of a benchmark for the individual's stories, as it's often referenced and sometimes offers excuses for adventures as the characters research new entries. Now, rounding out the cast are two sisters and a young boy, and they are more genre buffs (laughs) (laughs) for the most part, although one is, is more a Christian fantasy fan instead of science fiction. Letitia and Ruby are deftly written characters, both pursuing their determined courses in a land that's hostile to both their race and their sex. Ruff spends a lot of time with them as well, showcasing one's frustrated aspirations to be an astronomer, and the other, well, Ruby has a special trope of her own to explore, one which pivots around and turns on its head a particularly unpleasant idea of 20th century genre literature and media, which is to say it was a a particular horror that some sorcerer or mad scientist would cast a spell or invent a process whereby a black person could be changed into a white one. And this just terrified white people back in the day and titillated them and entertained them. I mean, you just can't even, you can't conceive of how awful that is. Matt Ruff skewers that old horrible plot device in a way that's entirely bittersweet, underlining another genuine horror 
that things haven't changed for African Americans anywhere near as much as they should have since the 1950s or the 1960s when the last of the Jim Crow laws were notionally abolished. The evils of racism and sexism goose step across the world as ever in our times, and we must be ever mindful and vigilant against them. And this book reminds us of other bad times and some very bad other worlds, because it is, of course, Lovecraft that he's riffing off. In much the same way as did the recent powerful Doctor Who episode that we played a track from, Rosa. Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country is a particularly strong entry in the genre, one that will stick with me for quite a while. It came out in 2016, and I've just read it from the Amazon Kindle store. It's a HarperCollins paperback. And it, it, it's actually quite shameful that I'm sitting there reading this on this high-tech electronic device, and these less-than-medieval ideas of racism still bound across our planet. I just, I'm left without words. And so I'll play a track instead. The Lovecraftian Horrors. <laughs> And this is by a group called Pandorum. So there is a bit of chanting in this one. So, you know, maybe you don't want to sing along with it as I'll have to <laughs> Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on zero G on three triple R FM. Put your tentacles together for <laughs> oh, the Lovecraftian horrors by Code Pandorum. I think I might have cut that title up a bit. I was so a fright. <laughs> All right, from Lovecraftian nightmares to digital afterlifes. Indeed, yes. That particular trope of being able to upload yourself. Mm. Uh, after death or indeed during life to a, a computer or to a cloud or whatnot. That is, that's got quite a few legs, not as many as Cthulhu, but it goes back so far in science fiction. Even if we just have a quick look at, at the ones that we've seen on television, I mean, I think there's at least three Black Mirror episodes that cover that topic. We've also got innumerable episodes of Red Dwarf and Star Trek in all its incarnations, uh, Tron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, of course, which we were talking about last week. Even in um, the 2014 Captain America, the Winter Soldier, we've got Arnim Zola, the Nazi scientist who uploads himself to a computer system. Transcendence, was that the one with Johnny Depp? Yeah, that sounds right. Even Avatar involves uploading after death. Absolutely. So, you know, and we've got Arnold Rimmer in Red Dwarf who's actually a holographic simulation of a, a dead human being, or at least an allegedly human person. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so this brings us to our latest entry into that on television. And Megan's been watching it. Indeed, yes. So I checked out Upload. So it's a new sort of science fiction comedy series. It's on Amazon Prime. And as Rob mentioned, it is something that we've seen quite a bit. And I think it's something that there's, you know, some notable executions of that. Like I'm thinking in particular the Black Mirror episode. I mean, is it a spoiler? It's been out for a long time. I feel like we can talk about it. Uh, the episode San Junipero, which is a lot of people's favourite episode. It's a uncharacteristically uplifting episode and uh, it had it got nominated for a whole bunch of awards and things, but it covers this kind of topic. There's a few other shows that go into this realm that I won't mention because I think that probably is a bit more in spoiler territory for now. Um, so 
It's upon this premise of kind of uploading yourself after death that Greg Daniels, the creator of this series, has built his new show. So Greg Daniels actually is a bit of the minute on Zero G because we, of course, covered Space Force. And now here he is with Upload. So his other sort of TV outings include, of course, the American Office, Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, Parks and Rec, and King of the Hill. So and of course, the Space Force that I mentioned. So this is kind of the vibe we're talking. Very much we're going into more of a comedy territory here. Uh, so the premise, uh, we'll unpack that a bit. So it's the year 2033 and you can upload your consciousness after death into different branded afterlife environments. So depending on what you choose, and obviously it's very much tied to what you can afford, uh, you can have very different experience after death where your consciousness continues to live on in this kind of afterlife. So as well as this premise, there's quite a bit of world building around what technology in the world would look like then. And they're sort of having fun with it. It's a bit of a grab bag of what would the future be like kind of hoverboard stuff where they've thought maybe it would be this, you know, things like, I don't think this is spoiling much, like you print your food and, you know, toast comes in a box and every, you know, everything's automated and that type of thing. So, you know, people have just kind of, it's sort of the writer's room putting up a bunch of ideas and they all get thrown into the show and that's fine. So it's a bit of a Easter egg territory of tech and all, it's all in good fun. So I think what was interesting about this show is that if you've got this kind of setting and then obviously we're then going to hone in a bit on who our main protagonist is. So I'll run through a bit about who our key players are. So we've got Nathan Brown. So he's sort of, he's in his twenties. He's a computer engineer himself, not a coincidence. And he is young, has everything going for him. Handsome. I think handsome is like one of the things his whole personality is built on from the looks of the show. And he has this beautiful girlfriend who he doesn't really seem to be that into, to be honest, uh, named Ingrid. And, you know, he, he just seems to have the whole world at his feet. Until, and this isn't a spoiler because it's the whole show, his untimely death. And oh, 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 how does he die? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, just turn it down if you don't want to know, but it's in the first episode. It's an AI uh, self-driving car accident. <laughs> so, yes. <That's> ironic. <laughs> indeed. So the self-driving car, I mean, this is something that, there's a lot of talk around the ethics of AI and how self-driving cars would work and, you know, kind of the different elements that need to be considered and and that kind of thing. And, you know, the show sort of has a light sheen of this stuff. And I was kind of impressed that it dealt with some of the stuff, some of the ethics things, but largely we're just throwing this here as a plot device. And so you get to see those things like your self-driving cars, what that looks like, what phones look like, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, Nathan dies gets uploaded into Lakeview, which is beautiful digital afterlife. We're talking, you know, kind of traditional American inn, kind of Twin Peaks without the cool stuff, lots of stag heads and dark mahogany and maroon carpets and a bellboy and all of this kind of thing. So, but obviously we don't just have a show where he just swans around the afterlife playing golf. It soon becomes apparent that maybe his death wasn't all that it seemed and then we sort of start to unpick the, the the where's and why's around what actually happened to Nathan. Of course, we also need uh, sort of a bit of love tension thrown in. So as part of uh, Lakeview, which is uh, sort of the umbrella company is called Horizon, uh, one of the Horizon employees who sort of acts in the place of an angel, 
individual. So sort of someone who helps guide these people through the afterlife, uh, their digital afterlife. So it's a woman called Nora and she's a great character. So she's someone who's still living in the real world. It raises some interesting things around how this whole afterlife and the real world living thing works in this imagined future. Uh, I won't go too much into any other characters, but there's some interesting people that he comes across, Nathan comes across in Lakeview, and also some other players that are still in the real world bios, I think they call them, so living people. Um, Well, before we continue, let's have a track then. Megan, you've picked out one for us. Yes. So we're going to listen to something from the soundtrack of this show. So it's called Lover's Carvings, and it's by BBO. Triple R. Hi, I'm Dee Wallace, over done with gone. That was Lover's Carvings by BBO, and we played that track because it is from the soundtrack of the show that I just watched all of in a very short period of time um, called Upload, which is on Amazon Prime at the moment. How many episodes, Megan? So it has 10 episodes. Actually, I think maybe the first one's 40, 45 minutes, and then there may be 30 minutes apiece, something like that. So, And there will be, I imagine probably another season I would anticipate. Yeah, so the show generally we sort of start with this idea about the afterlife and then it just keeps building on that in terms of what this digital afterlife would be and what that means and as well as this sort of central mystery, I suppose, about Nathan and what has happened with him and his because some of his memories are scrambled, not a coincidence. So, I mean, overall, like I said, I did watch all of this show. It's got some elements of maybe, I want to say maybe a little bit Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a little bit her, just dashes, and then maybe a dose of Black Mirror. There's some good place elements in there as well. Yeah, but- it, sounds, it sounds very good place. Is it as a, as philosophically a deep cut as um, good place? No, great question. And the answer is no. I think it's probably, it's a bit of a toothless comedy, I think. And there's a lot of interesting ideas, but the central mystery is a bit thin and it's enough to keep you interested. And I had a a sort of a bit of a think about it after I'd finished it. And there was a lot of interesting ideas here. I'm not going to like spoil it. So you can still definitely go and watch it. I'm going to try not to ruin anything. There's a lot of interesting ideas here, I think, and a lot of fun things that you can sort of, oh, that's a clever idea. Oh, that's a clever idea. It's silly and it's fun. And it is actually not meant to be a deep moral exploration. And I'm not saying shows like comedies can't do those things as well, because I think The Good Place, and there's plenty of examples of comedies that really do also dig in and have something a bit deeper to say. This show kind of threw out a lot of things. It threw out sort of the idea of consciousness and the soul and the ethics of AI and the ethics of the afterlife and what makes us human, but it doesn't really go any further than just kind of tossing them out like birdseed and then continuing to walk on. It doesn't really have those layers of thought in there and and is kind of just propelled by this a couple of of core ideas. And there's a few storylines that I would have liked to see go a little bit more dark or a little bit more interesting. But, like, if you've seen Interview with a Vampire – the young child vampire, <laughs> some of the things she experiences. You know, we could have had an interesting layer of some of that or like the motivations for why people would upload or upload a loved one, the inequality that's very built into the fact that these are not not all afterlife experiences are built equal and they're very, very wildly differing. And, it touch, again, it touches on that, but it doesn't really do anything with it. 
So that all said, I ended up realizing I was fine with it. It's just funny enough and it's just interesting enough. I think it is a decent show. I don't think it's, for example, it's not as charming as something like The Good Place and it's not as edgy as something like Black Mirror or Devs. But, you know, some of the characters are really engaging and enjoyable and it's very watchable. I think, like I said, there is some fun things thrown in there that are kind of like just this grab bag of fun future ideas <laughs> and things like that. So, and, you know, just different different things about how the Lakeview community would work and, and you know, the capitalism of in-app purchases and advertising and and that type of thing. And, and I think they were just having fun with it. And then I was like, oh, that's okay. I don't need everything to be the darkest episode of Black Mirror. Is, is it a sitcom at all? I don't think it's a sitcom. I think it is a comedy. The, the, the tone is very, very light. It is fluffy. It is light. It deliberately doesn't press on any of the bruises that could be something that's going to make you stay up late at night after you finish an episode. I didn't wildly chuckle, but I let out some light belly laughs. And it's sort of like eating junk food. Like you feel a little bit empty afterwards, but you ate food. So uh, I I would recommend it. I think there's some interesting ideas here. I don't think it's up there with something that should be considered essential viewing, especially with a lot of the other things that are sort of available right now. But I think if it's, if you after something a little bit light, and you're after something that, you know, you just want to watch like say, say an episode after dinner or something. I think it's, it's, it's nice for that type of thing. And like I said, it's also not anything that's going to press too hard on any deep issues. So don't go to it for that type of thing either. Okay. Yeah. Where do they find it again? <laughs> well, after my glowing review, <laughs> no, no, it really wasn't as bad as all that. I think I just have high expectations for this type of content. It is called Upload and it is on Amazon Prime, so it's streaming on their streaming service. So, yeah. Mm. Well, to play off of that, we'd uh, take a bite, as in B-Y-T-E, mm. with Janelle Monet. We played a tra- track by her last week. Uh, this is from her Dirty Computer album. And this is actually a naughty lyric song. So I do give you fair warning to lock up your androids, you know, so that they don't get shocked by this. It's got a little tiny E on it. So maybe there are only little naughty words. Oh, I reckon. I I know Janelle. I think I do. (laughs) Yeah. So Take a Bite by Janelle Monet, Dirty Computer. You have been warned. Uh, Hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3RRRFM 0G, idiots. Leaving you green with envy there with the Demi Mond title track from Penny Dreadful, and that was by Abel Kozanyowski. Before that, <laughs> I, I know. I just I recognize. I was like, oh, I wonder if it's by the guy who scored Nocturnal Animals because it sounds very similar, and it is him. Anyway, there goes my oh, yeah. my scoring ear. Anyway, sorry, Penny Dreadful. And before that, we had we had take a bite with Janelle Monet from her Dirty Computer album, and I must admit, I'm so disappointed there wasn't two. The, the lyrics said explicit, and I thought, oh, maybe they, maybe the E stands for electronic. <laughs> Rob was disappointed. (laughs) Anyway, we are talking about Penny Dreadful Season Mm 3. We have recently reviewed City of Angels. 
which is the Penny Dreadful spiritual air set in pre-World War II Hollywood, Los Angeles as well. <laughs> and it's actually too close to the bone at the moment, um, City of Angels there. Yeah. There's a demon fermenting race riots and uh, racial tension and all sorts of horrible things um, where the Nazis are interacting with the local Mexican-American population. And uh, it's just, it's throwing accelerant onto the flames. And fortunately, it only drops one episode a week. (laughs) So I can have a break from it. But I I thought I'd go back and finish off watching Penny Dreadful Season 3, which, of course, is our slightly steampunk pastiche. Mr. Logan is the um, the showrunner of that, John Logan, and it, it's set in the 19th century in London, more or less, but it's also set in uh, the United States in this season. And there's a lot of themes in this one. Uh, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is trying to get his bride back. And, and so he hatches a plan with Dr. Jekyll. Oh, that's going to go well, isn't it? <laughs> that will go well. And the bride herself, in her little patchwork potpourri of suffragette activism, mm-hmm. is conspiring with an increasingly bored Dorian Gray. Yes, that Dorian Gray, to start a feminist revolution in the 19th century. And the monster himself, which is, that, and that is to say, none of the actual human characters, but the post-human character of the Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get back to his real pre-surgery family, which is oh so tragic. And our favourite werewolf, Mr Chandler, is being pursued in the United States by his biological American father and his spiritual Apache pater uh, with Sir Malcolm along for the ride, as well as a witch too, left over from previous series. Why not? Why not? Meanwhile, the formidable barking mad Vanessa Ives is wrestling with Dracula ah. and her personal alienist, which is not introducing yet another genre element, but uh, in that time she's kind of the alienist is kind of a therapist, a mm, psychiatrist. Mm. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot, a lot there. of things. <laughs> because they got cancelled uh, for season three, or they rounded it off anyway, both both and neither and then went on to uh, City of Angels, or at least one actor from um, Penny Dreadful Season 3 went forwards to that. There is actually one too many themes in there, I felt. If it had been me, I might have kept out the one with the bride conspiring with Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great story in itself, but I really think it deserved a separate season. Anyway, they've got some great cast members who've who've, uh, appeared in this, apart from all of the recurring surviving characters and some Mm -hmm and some who actually can't be, strictly speaking, said to have survived, not in any normal sense, Shazad Latif, who plays uh, the character in um, Star Trek Discovery. Well, actually, I don't want to spoil that character in case you haven't uh-huh. seen it. He plays Dr. Jekyll. Cool. Uh, we've also got uh, Christian Canago playing Dracula, and he's actually a really – he's got a really slick take on being Dracula in this, which I, I thought was quite cool. Um, we've got um, some other people in there who I thought were great. Um, Brian Cox oh. plays um, uh, the father of uh, Ethan Chandler. Cool. And then and Perdita Wheats plays Catriona Hartigan, and she's a, a thanatologist, a deaf scholar. Uh, and she's got a lot of knowledge of um, the supernatural. And there's a dual role in this one. We've got um, the uh, actress who played 
the cut wife who was the um, the mentor in the supernatural to the Vanessa Rives character. Mm. And she now appears as the psychiatrist. So she's like an, a reincarnation of that. So this is a, a strong story. Um, I think that, they, as I said, too many themes and the uh, the introduction of the Catriona Hartigan character I think is a bit too too pat for this extra season. Uh, and she's a good character too. She's one of those um, all-fencing, uh, male-clothes-wearing action heroines Ooh. from the Penny Dreadful novels. Uh, and, of course, it's um, Patty Lupone who plays Dr. Seward, the, um, the uh, therapist. Oh, she's great. She's a, she's a great character and a great actor too. Mm. And, of course, Dr. Seward, there's a gender swap there from the, uh, the Dracula stories. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot in this story, and there's some great moments where the Frankenstein's monster is revealed to have played a uh, a bigger part in uh, Vanessa Ives' past than we thought, and that's really quite powerfully done, like riveting television. And there is a lot of that in the Penny Dreadful series. It can be a bit uneven, um, but not uneven, <laughs> to name the werewolf, Um but it was entertaining until the last, and I'm sorry to see it go. And they ended it pretty much in in theme and tone with the rest of the series. So mm. I think I will uh, I'll take my um, my stovepipe hat, my mm. top hat off to them for for bringing it into land so so well. If a little bit rushed is what it felt, um, and it's it is once again a full on gory season of Penny Dreadful. Uh, yeah, and and I'm done with Victorian steampunkery sort of stuff. I want to see some other eras, and then that's what they did. They changed up and they gave me uh, pre-war World War Two Hollywood and Los Angeles in City of Angels. So I'm actually a happy camper. And Penny Dreadful one, two, three seasons, and the City of Angels are on stand uh, to be found there. So if you like a good pastiche, <laughs> uh, not a Cornish pastiche, <laughs> but one that's more like um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or uh, some of Philippe Jose Farmer's um, novels. Uh, this is the place to go, Penny Dreadful. All right, so we're going to go out of a track today, Mr. David Bowie, with Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, which I thought was the appropriate take on this particular occasion. All right, that's it for Zero G for today. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And we'll leave it to Mr. Bowie and scary monsters and super creeps. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.